0: I invite you to take your copy of God's Word. And turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 46. We are reading in Jeremiah, chapter 46. We'll be reading the entirety of this chapter this morning. And I'll be reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's word declares, the word of the Lord, which came to Jeremiah the prophet against the nations, against Egypt, concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, the king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates in Karshemesh, and which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Order the buckler and shield, and draw near to battle. Harness the horses and mount up, you horsemen. Stand forth with your helmets, polish the spears, put on the armor. Why have I seen them dismayed and turned back? Their mighty ones are beaten down. They have speedily fled and did not look back, for fear was all around, says the Lord. Do not let the swift flee away, nor the mighty man escape. They will stumble and fall toward the north by the river Euphrates. Who is this coming up like a flood, whose waters move like the rivers? Egypt rises up like a flood, and its waters move like the rivers. And he says, I will go up. And cover the earth, I will destroy the city and its inhabitants. Come up, O horses, and rage, O chariots, and let the mighty men come forth, the Ethiopians and the Libyans who handle the shield, the Lydians who handle and bend the bow. For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge himself on his adversaries. The sword shall devour, it shall be satiated and made drunk with their blood, for the Lord God of hosts has a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Go up to Gilead and take balm, O virgin, the daughter of Egypt. In vain you will use many medicines. You shall not be cured. The nations have heard of your shame and your cry has filled the land. For the mighty man has stumbled against the mighty. They have fallen, both have fallen together. The word that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet, how Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, would come and strike the land of Egypt. Declare in Egypt to proclaim in Migdal. Proclaim in Noth and in Taphnes. Say, stand fast and prepare yourselves. For the sword devours all around you. Why are your valiant men swept away? They did not stand because the Lord drove them away. He made many fall. Yes, one fell upon another, and they said, Arise, let us go back to our own people, to the land of our nativity from the oppressing sword. They cried there, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is but a noise. He has passed by the appointed time. As I live, says the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Surely as Tabor is among the mountains, and as Carmel by the sea, so he shall come. O oh, you daughter Dwelling in Egypt, prepare yourself to go into captivity, for Naath shall be waste and desolate without inhabitant. Egypt is a very pretty heifer, but destruction comes. It comes from the north. Also her mercenaries are in her midst like fat bulls, for they also are turned back, and they have fled away together. They did not stand, and the day of their calamity had come upon them, the time of their punishment. Her noise shall go like a serpent, for they shall march with an army and come against her with axes, like those who chop wood. Then they shall cut down her forest, says the Lord. Though it cannot be searched, because they are innumerable and more numerous than grasshoppers, the daughter of Egypt shall be ashamed. She shall be, she shall be delivered into the hand of the people of the north. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says, Behold, I will bring punishment of Ammon of Noah. And Pharaoh and Egypt with their gods and their kings, Pharaoh and those who trust in him. I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their lives, in the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of his servants. Afterward shall be inhabited as in the days of old, says the Lord. But do not fear, O my servant Jacob, and do not be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar, and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have rest, and be at ease No one shall make him afraid. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, says the Lord, for I am with you. For I will make a complete end of all the nations to which I have driven you. But I will not make a complete end of you. I will rightly correct you, for I will not leave you wholly unpunished. As I shared last week, um, we are really going back in time now chronologically in our study. We have really finished Jeremiah's ministry during his lifespan, um, and this is why our uh, King James Bibles are a little bit different than the, the Masoretic Bibles are a little different. New King James, all of the NIV, it doesn't matter. All of them built off the Masoretics is a little bit different than than the Orthodox Bible. The Orthodox Bible has the chapters we're about to study way back there in the late 20s chapters. So it would have, it did it more chronologically. And the reason for that um, is because of a, a variance of view of when you should be studying these chapters um, and what do they apply to. And of course, the Septuagint wanted to do it chronologically a little more, um, whereas the Masoretic texts have it tied more to thematic. And we find that we come into a portion of scripture that is considered some of the best poetry within the prophets, uh, rivaling some of that 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 we see in Psalms. But among all the prophets, we find that this is uh, very potently and very effectively done. And whether this was, in fact, some people would contend that it was written by Jeremiah well after all the events. Um, But it is very evident that Jeremiah is portraying and presenting this as prophetic material that he was given. And so whether you want to say, well, he wrote this after the fact. um, And of course, every textual critic, every critic of the Bible wants to make every prophetic passage written after the fact. Um, That's true of Daniel. That's true of everything. Because everything that gives specifics, they always want to attribute to some later writer. Um, Because they don't want to admit or acknowledge that God reveals the future to men. And uh, so I would tend to lean more towards the Septuagint and place this passage back in the 20s, but uh, that wouldn't help you guys follow along too well. So we're going to, we've obviously taken it in the order given to us here in our Bibles. And so we are going to go back in time. And this is going all the way back to the time of Josiah. Now, I recognize that verse 1 tells us that it is during the time of the fourth year. to verse 2, I'm sorry. It was the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. But we really have to back up into the time of Josiah to understand what is going on in the framework of this prophetic word. And so we have God addressing the the sin and the circumstances, not only of Israel, of Judah, of Jerusalem, of his people, but God is also attentive to and Lord of all the nations. And this is very critically important for us, and, and I love that it's today with our election coming up. I really thought I would be finishing today. I thought this would be my last message in Jeremiah would be this Sunday. That was what well, my calendar was set up for. So as you can tell, I'm a little off. Um, we've got at least four messages left. Now I'm hoping to be done before Christmas. But um, we come to this and we find that, well, yeah, God has rights to reign and to call the shots in Israel, in Judah, but does he have that right over all the nations? You see, we would, even in the Reformed churches, they would say, well, God has the right, you know, the church replaced Israel, and so whenever they read Israel in the Old Testament, they would apply those principles to the church, and I do that to some degree, not because I believe that Israel replaces the church, but because we've been grafted into, or the church replaces Israel, but that we've been grafted in to Israel. And so we are sons of Abraham, um, not by lineage, but by faith in Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, capital S. And so we find that God does exercise this right over all nations, And those that think that America replaces Israel are really out there. I don't know what they're thinking, because that's nowhere portrayed in Scripture. Um, That's just fanciful thinking. Uh, The fact is is that we are a Gentile nation. And the the people of God, if you want to reference people of God, a a peculiar people, a a nation, a citizenship, uh, the Bible says that's the church. That we have recognized Christ as our king. That is what it means to become a follower of Jesus Christ. That he is our Lord and king, our master. And it is his kingdom that we serve. That, we, that is where our citizenship lies. And so really what comes into question, and in the midst of this there are some really strong declarations of God's sovereignty. That he rules over the nations he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords, not just in one land, but in all the earth. And thus, while he is dealing rather harshly with his own children, and he is using Gentile nations as instruments of his work, he is not callous to the necessity of judging them as well, to their sin. He is not uh, unaware of their practices and nor will he be lax in letting them get away with it for he will judge the earth. And so um, we look forward to that time when he will ultimately judge the nations and even talks about this, that there will be a time where he will bring it to a complete end the nations of the earth. Um, and we're going to see that played out well down the line prophetically But just the knowledge that that is in the horizon of God's plan is to be an encouragement to his people. Um, You have a greater accountability, Israel, because you have greater access. But that doesn't mean that the nations have no accountability, they do. In fact, I would contend that the more access a nation has to the truth of God's word, the greater their level of accountability, which means the greater the extent of their judgment. Did Egypt, and we're going to go through all these, in fact it's interesting that these are going to be chronologically almost for us. Uh, They do grow from more or less west to east, um, geographically, but also in terms of their rise to power and God's going to deal with these nations. And yes, did Egypt have access? Oh, yes, they had access. The time of Joseph on, they have had full access to the God of Israel. They know firsthand. They have had his hand against them and the plagues. And the, they, they saw the Red Sea part. They know. They saw the pillar of fire at night and the cloud by day. And so they had access as we go through all of these, we're going to ask ourselves, did the Philistines have access? Oh, yes, they did. In fact, they had the Ark of the Covenant in their midst at one point. They took it captive, and they learned, don't mess with the God of the Ark of the Covenant. Send it back. Our gods don't stand a chance against that God. And As we go through all of these, we are going to see, and all the way to Babylon, where this is going to end, And essentially what we're going to have painted before us is the rise and fall of the Babylonian Empire in prophetic poetry um, with reference to the nations that she is used by God to judge and then judged herself. Okay. And so um, we're going to look through these. We're not going to take a lot of time. We're going to take a lot of time on Egypt. And then we're going to go rapid fire through a bunch of them next week. And then we're going to try to deal with Babylon and God's handling there where there's two chapters dedicated to her judgment. Why does God judge her? And so we're going to back up and look, this is going to be a little bit of a history lesson today, and we're going to try to work in those two or three aspects to recognize, and hopefully at the end of this, acknowledge in our hearts and in our actions that God is the God of all the earth, not just the church, not just Israel, but all the nations. Let's go, Lord. Lord, we do thank you for your love for us, for your word, for your spirit. We pray that as we look into it that you might give us direction and, and understanding, that you might uh, convict us where that is necessary, that you might uh, instruct us and encourage us to stand fast, to walk, uh, knowing that you are Lord above and one day we'll be Lord on the earth. Until that day, Lord, we pray that we might be found faithful in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. So we have to back up. We have to back up to 2 Kings, and I invite you to turn there, 2 Kings chapter 23, to understand some of the backdrop of why are we um, dealing with this Egyptian king. I thought the problem was the uh, Babylonians. And uh, you might be thinking, because Israel ran to Egypt... In the previous chapters that we've studied, that this is referring to that period of time, but it's not. Um, he is not saying, this is not referencing the, the, it will eventually reference the ultimate fall of Egypt. He's really backing all the way up to uh, a Pharaoh called Necho. So let's look at this in 2 Kings, chapter 23, verse 28. <clears throat> says, Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all they did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went to the aid of the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates, and King Josiah went against him. And Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo when he confronted him. Then his servants moved his body in a chariot from Megiddo, brought him to Jerusalem, and buried him in his own tomb. The people of the land took Jo. Ahaz, the son of Josiah, anointed him and made him king in his father's place. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutol, and the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. I don't know how much evil you can do in three months, but he found a way. Now Pharaoh Necho put him in prison at Riblah in the land of Hamath that he might not reign in Jerusalem. He imposed on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. And then Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of his father Josiah and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Pharaoh took Jehoahaz and went to Egypt and he died there. And it goes on and talks about how Jehoiakim Um, sent tribute then to Egypt. In the midst of this, we begin to see the historical background of what we're talking about here in Jeremiah. This is the period we're referring to. This is the Pharaoh. He is coming up. He has essentially conquered Israel, made her a vassal, has uh, killed Josiah, replaced him, or well, the people replaced him, for three months, Necho allowed that, but then said, no, that's not the man. Um, that's going to be, uh, he's not subservient to me. And so he sets up Joachim, and Joachim is there, and for four years he's doing that. But in the midst of this, we are given a little tidbit of information. As, as Pharaoh Necho is in league with someone. He is in league with the Assyrians. In, 20, in, in chapter 23, and so he, when he's called upon, he's going to go up there, and they are going to go all the way to the Euphrates River and fight to defend Syria, Assyria, against Babylon. And so this is what is being referenced when we come to Jeremiah um, chapter 46. Is that here they are. Uh, the king is going up there, they're going to the to the uh, River Euphrates. He is in league with another army, the Syrians, um, to really put an end to these Babylonian threat on the other side of the Euphrates. And of course, when they get there, the battle doesn't go their way, and in fact, they are driven off. And it's described for us in very powerful poetic language. Go ahead, shine up your shields, go up there. They felt they had an overwhelming force between the two armies. They had, in addition to them, mercenaries that they had hired, all piled up there at the Euphrates River at Karshemesh. Car- i got to pronounce it properly. I'll find it. Karshamesh, sorry. At Karshemesh. And they are up against the kings of Babylon's son. Yes, his son. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. For Nebuchadnezzar wasn't king yet of Babylon, when this army was amassed at the Euphrates, he was the prince. And he led that battle. And he disposed deposed and dispossessed Assyria, went across, and chased Natchel right down the valley, right back to Egypt, almost. But they stopped. And they could have had a complete route of Egypt right there on the spot, and they could have chased them all the way down to Memphis. And it sounds like that might have happened, but it didn't. It stopped. And it's actually going to reference that here in a little bit in the Mountains of Gilead. Which is on the east side of the Jordan from Israel. So they're coming down, and um, all of a sudden, Prince Nebuchadnezzar stops chasing the Egyptians. And it gives the Egyptians a little bit of time. Um, They don't have the Babylonian army on their heels any longer, and uh, there's kind of a hesitation on Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, in that time of hesitation, is very criticized by his Mercenaries and by his soldiers. And uh, why are you delaying? They've turned around. Let's go back up there. Let's take them out. We can, it's always easier to attack an army from the rear when they're rocking away from you. But Nacho hesitates and, in fact, decides he's just going to, he does a little stuff there in Jerusalem and in, in Israel area and heads back to Egypt. And we find that he never gets out of Egypt again. He makes one little attempt while King Nebuchadnezzar is at Jerusalem, but he is squelched and then ultimately down the road will be destroyed by the Babylonians. So what was it that caused Nebuchadnezzar to go home? He got word that his dad passed away. And so he returned to Babylon and was made king that, on that occasion. And so it talks about the king of Babylon. And so really what we have here is here's the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Here's how, here's the event where he became king in the midst of this glorious victory over his uh, neighboring empire, the Assyrians, and this this long-standing empire of Egypt to the south. this glorious victory in the midst of this, his father in Babylon passes away. He is called back to be made king. Um, And this is the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar and what we think of as the Babylonian Empire. And what is going to be painted for us in the next few chapters is now, from this point on, God is going to use this man to judge the nations, not just Israel, He's going to judge Israel through Nebuchadnezzar, but he's also going to judge all these neighboring nations as well through this one. And we're going to find that each of these nations we're going to get to of Philistia. Remember the Philistines? You know, Goliath? Philistines? Of, of the Assyrians. Uh, that's Damascus it's going to be listed there. Um, it's going to list Edom. Um, it's going to list Ammon. It's, it's going to list all of these um, Nations that surround Israel and say, Well, I'm using him not just to judge you, I'm using him to judge the whole region. And so we really have, in a very powerful poetical presentation, the entire history of Nebuchadnezzar's rise to power, his exercise of his power, even while. Is he was eating grass like an ox. His, his empire was sustained, and you can't hardly believe the Daniel didn't have something to do with that. And then his, the collapse of his empire once he's off the scene. And it's all laid out here in reference to all the nations. And so we have this presentation. They go to the north, they get beat, But this wasn't just about establishing Nebuchadnezzar as a force to be reckoned with and as the instrument of God. We also have several other aspects brought forward that I think are lost on us. Sometimes are lost on us because of our translation of of the passage um, by the Masoretes, and uh, and I'm going to be referencing the Septuagint a couple of times, but... um, we have lost track of one very important phrase being used. And I want you to look at it very quickly with me right now. And that's towards the end of chapter 46. It's in verse 25. Verse 25 says, The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says, Behold, I will bring punishment on Ammon of Noah and Pharaoh and Egypt with their gods and their kings, Pharaoh and those who trust in him. Very important passage. It is, I think, a critical one to understanding what is going on in this poetic form um, and God is declaring it. I am not just trying to um, judge Egypt and Pharaoh Necho. Remember, he just used Pharaoh Necho to to wreak some havoc in Israel to set up the the, uh, scenario where the Babylonians would come in. But he is recognizing that they have their own gods. And of course, every military in this period of time gave credit to their god for their victory. And the Egyptians were no different. So throughout this poetic passage, we have several of the gods of Egypt listed, and we often just blow by it and just miss it entirely. But in the pictures, and the imagery that the that Jeremiah is using, he is essentially chastising or or, um, belittling or ridiculing even the Egyptians. And I want you to pick up on some of these with me. Okay. The first thing is to shine everything up. Make it gleam. Let it glitter. Shine all your weapons up. Um, And what's the whole idea here? Is that, well, you polish your spears, you, uh, you you put you polish your helmets, your harnesses, everything. You get it all pretty, and you're, you're heading up north. And of course, what is the whole point of shining it all up? Not just to sharpen it, but to shine it is the whole idea of you're reflecting the sun, number one god. You know, you want the sun to shine on all your stuff, glimmer and 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 shimmer in the sun. It's all going to be destroyed. You're going to come in like a flood, like a river. Do you see it there? If you go on down, it says, verse 8 Egypt rises like a flood, and its waters move like the rivers. And he says, as Natural says, I will go up and cover the earth. I'm going to be like a flood. And of course, the river that everyone lives off the flood is the Nile. It is one of their gods. The Nile is a goddess of Egypt. And so when God says, I'm going to humble not just the kings, not just Pharaoh, But they're gods. What Jeremiah is doing is going right through and he is just listing off in very poetic, non literal language, but he's listing off the things that they're trusting in. They're gods. We get to verse. I can do a lot. I'm going to move along quicker here. Let's go jump down to verse 14. Declare in Egypt, Pharaoh, in Migdal, proclaim enough, and in stand fast, prepare yourselves, for the sword devours all around you. Why are, and in your translation it says your valiant men swept away. Um, But uh, in the Septuagint, I believe, you'll find the word apis, which is their calf god. This is the one that Aaron fashioned. Calf god, apis, is used there. Why we avoided using that in a translation here, I don't know. Um, but that's the reference here. And it is brought out again when we get to verse 20. Egypt is a pretty heifer. And the mercenaries are fat bulls in verse 21. And so he's just gone through. And in this whole passage, he has drawn out and, and identified these entities that Egypt has deified and said, they're all going to be humiliated. Why are you trusting in these false gods? Why are you trusting in a government led by Necho? You already taught this lesson once, very vividly, very powerfully. You were taught this lesson. There is no mistaking that the plagues of Egypt were an obvious slap in the face to the gods of Egypt including some of these very gods. Think about what was destroyed, made turned bad in Egypt. The Nile was turned to blood. That goddess that you worship, instead of being a benefit to you, it was a liability. Think of the animals, the livestock that were slain, that were died in the midst of of these plagues. And over and over again, We have these same terminology, and then, of course, you have Aaron's rod, staff, that turns into a serpent, another one of their gods, another god that is referenced here as well, in verse 22, her noise shall go like a serpent, for they shall march with an army and come against her with axes, and so you find that here you are trusting in in serpents as one of your gods, God says, I'm going to destroy it, you're going to get chopped up, Kind of interesting, some of the references here, and this is why people have a hard time believing that this could be this specific and this accurate before the event. Remember that when Jeremiah is writing this in the year of Jehoiakim, they hadn't really ever encountered Babylonians. They had some visitors from, the, from Babylon during the time of Hezekiah the visit, but they hadn't really encountered Babylonians in war. I say, well, why is that important? Because the Babylonians used a weapon that Israel had never seen used in war. They used something called a battle axe. Egyptians never used that. Canaanites never used that. Israelites never used that. But the Babylonians used battle axes. And so we come to to this, and and, uh, no mistaking, we come in and... uh, What did I just read? Verse 22. They shall march with an army and come against her with axes like those who chop wood. This is a weapon that Israel wasn't familiar with. They were going to become familiar with it. Very familiar with it. Right? When the Babylonians come down and siege against you, they're going to realize that. But this is a new weapon to them. And so here, prophetically, Jeremiah says, "Um, you don't know what these axes are. It's going to be like what you used to chop wood, but they're using it to chop down people. This is how specific he gets. And so he paints this whole thing in, in very powerful language that this is the rise of the Babylonian Empire. I'm gonna, the, you're not really the first uh, nation I'm going to use her against. It's actually the Assyrians and the Egyptians I'm going to use Babylon against them first. And that's why you have an insertion here. Right in between Egypt and all the other nations, you have Israel's place. And Israel is told, listen, um, there's still hope for you. Remember, this is the time of Jehoiakim. There's still hope for you. <clears> he <throat> says, don't fear, my servant. Don't be dismayed, O Israel. I will save you from afar, and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Um, implying that you're going to go into captivity, but don't be afraid of this enemy. I can restore you, but I'm using this enemy to visit the other nations as well. So Egypt really is the first one. Then Israel, and then the other nations we're going to see, including Philistia, Syria, on and on. And so we find that there is some chronology here and God is giving some very specific information in this, in this prose and poetry and we find um, a declaration. God is declaring something. I'm not just your God. I'm the God of all the earth. And these nations are not doing what they're doing with me uninvolved. I know they don't glorify me as their God. That doesn't mean I'm not their God. That I'm not the God that is in charge of these things. And so, yes, how many times in war have we heard of miracles? That is, how could this tiny little force stand up against this enormous, overwhelming force that outnumbers them, outguns them, has higher technology? How can that be? Well, it's a very simple thing. If God doesn't give you the victory, you will have no victory a simple thing. God is ultimately the one. It's not fate, it is not luck, it is not ultimately even superior strategy, it is is not superior weaponry, ultimately it is God that determines victors among nations and who will judge whom. But we have disconnected ourselves from that in our educated godless perspective on the rise and fall of nations and empires, and our understanding of warfare and and what's involved in it. Because we have become atheistic in our view of history. And that, I'm convinced, is the result of a perspective on government and nations that well outdates my lifespan of disavowing God's place to rule among nations. And you've heard me speak of this in our own country's history where we have said, no, we'll decide who rules over us. We'll make that choice and you're going to see our nation, do it again, this Tuesday, we will make that choice of who rules over us when God says, I will choose. I raise up kings. I bring them down. I raise up kingdoms. I bring them down. But we say, no, Lord, you can't do that. We do it better. <laughs> and boy, we have a mess. Um, there was a little snarky post on media. It was just a, it's from a, one of those um, websites that puts out um, imaginary news. And it was a little post that had the Queen of England saying, I, it's been a nice experiment, but it's failed, so instead of an election, why don't you just vote to become, make me queen again. (laughs) And things go back, and I'll have no hard feelings, and just make me your queen. (laughs) But All the stuff they listed there is really pretty accurate. Historically, we rebelled against our divinely placed king. But we don't want to acknowledge that. We are so divorced from our thinking that we grow angry just hearing those kinds of words. Because we have been bred with the idea that liberty of selecting your own leaders is a divine right for man, but it is not. It is man stealing from God his right. And yes, even in war, in battle, um, the outcome is the Lord's. And that's why so many presidents down in the ages understood that and said we need to go Lord in prayer and, and generals as well. And, and uh, we need some men of prayer here because it doesn't matter whether we have overwhelming force. It's ultimately God that gives the victory. And this is what Egypt learned. They should have learned the lesson in Israel. but They didn't they went up to babylon and now they're going to be destroyed and chased and god says as i live i am the king i am the lord and this is in verse 18 i know i'm jumping around a little bit but in verse 18 as i live there's nothing you can do to stop babylon if you can make mountains disappear then you can stop Babylon. Because as long as I am the king, he will reign over you. He will destroy you. you have no, but he didn't listen. And Nacho, like so many others and so many in Israel, is going to go up there and say, oh no, we have overwhelming force. We have all the advantages. This is a fledgling little country and we're going we're to stamp them out before they get any traction going, and instead gave them the very traction they needed to dominate the entire region. How foolish. To ignore the working of God. Even when you're duly warned to try to do it your way, convinced that you are unstoppable. Convinced that you are right. Why? Because they trust in their gods and their kings. And yes, God holds Gentile nations accountable for trusting in their gods and kings instead of in him. They have access to the truth. And at this point on the earth, every nation has has had access to the truth of who the king of all the earth is. And thus every nation on earth can be condemned with this very same statement, I will punish you because you have trusted in other gods and in other kings. When you should have been trusting in me all that time. And the phenomenal thing about Nebuchadnezzar, right, is eventually he gets it. Nacho never got it. And you cannot tell me he went through the land of Israel, did all that he did there um, with Josiah the, of all kings, and never heard this. Jeremiah was around. Jeremiah was prophesying. He was doing his job. He was a young guy, granted but he was doing his job. Nacho didn't listen. But Nebuchadnezzar will listen. His servant comes down here and says, Okay, Jer- remember? Jeremiah, we're freeing you. You go wherever you want. We're not messing with you. you. know The only reason this happened to Jerusalem is because they didn't obey you and your God. And, and this is God's punishment on them. We really didn't want this to happen. You know, and that respect and that awe of the God of Israel. Why did Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, why did they get it and not necho Because necho chose not to get it. He chose to trust in his own little gods and in the kings. Uh, we're going to have this, this uh, whole group of kings up here. There, there's no way the Babylonians can take us out. And they get chased all the way down to Gilead. And that's why the prophet says, send, all your, you know, send everyone to Gilead and see if you can get healed there. You got a little rest there, and Gilead is known for their balms, for their medicinal balms. And he says, settle down in Gilead. See if you can find any medicine that'll, that'll heal you. It won't work. Because once this wound has been made, it, because God has ordained it, once this wound has been made, there's no healing from it. And you're going to be driven all the way back to Egypt, and you'll never come out of Egypt again. There's no healing this wound. Why? Because you ignored Jeremiah when you went through the land. But Nebuchadnezzar, as a servant of Nebuchadnezzar, didn't. And Nebuchadnezzar, up there in Babylon, while Nebuchadnezzar is dealing with Jeremiah, who's Nebuchadnezzar dealing with? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And he's responding It takes a while, and he has a few years to play the animal, you know, out there eating grass, but he gets it. He goes, oh, this isn't about me and my God. It's about the one true and living God who is the King of kings and Lord of lords and names him such. No wonder God is so interested in using this man. He is responsive to the truth. And this sets him, him apart and his empire apart for this, all these chapters where God says, "Out of the north, out of the north," and God says, "Come on, take care of them. Those Philistines, you know, David fought them, Saul fought them. The Philistines have been fought and fought and fought. And you come down here and just clean them up." These are places we're familiar with, aren't they? This is the Gaza Strip. So He's going to say, "Come on, take out, take care of Moab. Moab is getting high and mighty. Take them out." And He's just going to call Nebuchadnezzar as my servant not to inflict punishment just on Israel, but all the nations. The idea that somehow we have (laughs) a notion that we represent a Babylonian-like, Nebuchadnezzar-like nation that is the instrument of God to judge others is simply myopic. You're not looking at things. Because what we find in Daniel is that the last empire earth isn't an instrument used to judge others. It is going to be judged by one king. The king of kings will come and it says we'll destroy the stone not built with human hands. We'll destroy that nation. Jesus himself will take out the last empire. He reserves that for himself. And so there is at the end times no nation like Babylon on the earth that is the instrument of God to judge other nations because in the end times that is Jesus' role to come and judge the nations at Armageddon, in the Megiddo Valley where he comes and he personally destroys it as he promised in this chapter. I will put an end to all the nations. Do not think that the U.S. is an exception to that declaration. We are not. We are not the exception. We are a Gentile nation. We are not the replacement of Israel. And it should deeply concern you that our attitude towards Israel has become so harsh in the last decade. Because if you're not with Israel, you're against Christ. He will come and destroy the nations. He will bring them to an end, but He will not, this is where the passage ends in verse at the end of chapter 46, "I will not make a complete end of you. I will rightly correct you for I will not leave you wholly unpunished. God's going to correct Israel, but don't mistake in that for what He does to the nations. He's going to correct them so he can rule them as their Lord and Savior. The nations he's going to bring to an end. And some of them he already has. There is no Babylonian, there's no country of Babylon today. There's no country of Assyria today. There is an Egypt, and there's a very specific reason why there's still an Egypt for the millennial kingdom. But there is no Edom today. There is no Moab. There is Assyria for a very specific reason also. There's no Philistine empire. There's no Elam. This place has all been swallowed up. And one day, all the nations will be brought to an end by Christ. Until that day, we do not claim allegiance to any nation on earth. Our allegiance is to a kingdom of God in the hearts of men we wait for it to become a kingdom on earth under the reign of Christ. Until that day we are called to stand. Not in the ways of men and the ways of nations to trust in them, but rather that we trust in God. And it is well timed that we understood that when you start trusting in the gods and the kings of the nations that you are inviting God's punishment. I'm going to punish you because you trusted in gods and kings. I'm going to punish you, Egypt, because you trusted in your gods and kings. I'm going to punish, and each one of these are going to be punished because they trusted in their gods and kings. Do not trust in the gods of America. Oh, we have them. And do not trust in the kings of America. Oh, we don't call them kings, but they are. Do not trust in them. Trust in the Lord or brace yourself for punishment. Do not be like Necho. Let us be of the character, ultimately, of Nebuchadnezzar, who says, I'm just an instrument. The real king is the God of all the earth. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for a very powerful passage of Scripture and for some principles of our understanding of the relationship Between you and the nations, and thus a relationship, principles between us and our nation. Lord, give us the wisdom to know our role. And Lord, give us faith to trust in you and not in the things so readily at hand. Lord, help us to put our hope, our future, our dreams all in your kingdom where they will never be disappointed and guard us from trusting in any man, any political system, any nation on this earth till you come in Christ Jesus name. Amen.